Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. <sighs> anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ad's are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. ACAS Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAS Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where my guests reveal the five things from their life they would choose to put in a time capsule. They pick four things from any time in their past that they treasure and want to keep safe, or indeed to have again, but they also have to choose something from their life that they would rather forget, something they want to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is the actor, television presenter and Chancellor of the University of Sussex, Sanjeev Baskar, who rose to fame in the sketch show Goodness Gracious Me and the sitcom The Kumars at number 42. He also presented the documentary series India with Sanjeev Baskar. Sanjeev was awarded the title OBE in 2006. Answers on a postcard as to what that stands for. His acting career is quite spectacular. On the telly, he's been in Captain Butler, Jonathan Creek, Keeping Mum, Dalil and Pasco, Mumbai Calling, which he also wrote, The Indian Doctor, Midsummer Murders, let's face it, who hasn't? Well, me actually, but never mind. Doctor Who and Horrible Histories. He's the voice of Shankar in Thomas and Friends. He's also been in Porters, Good Omens, Sandy Lanes and the multi-award winning drama Unforgotten. His film credits include Notting Hill, Anita and Me, Scoop, Arthur Christmas, Paddington 2, Horrible Histories the Movie, Dragon Rider and Richard Curtis's Yesterday. 
Sanjeev has had a number one with Gareth Gates for Comic Relief. He's played King Arthur in the musical Spamalot and been on Desert Island Discs. So he must be very relieved that finally his career has started going somewhere and he can talk to me about the five things he'd like to put in a time capsule. So here is Sanjeev's big break, or possibly the end of his career. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, mate. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Good. Oh, look at us. Look at us. Actually, we both get away with it. We're just about getting away with the fact that I've got a stinking cold and you've got a terrible throat. <laughs> are you on any dosage other than usual Lemsips and hot drinks and whatnot? No, just the normal Lemsip. Uh, I'm going to set my audacity off, by the way. Fantastic. Oh, God, this is so easy. <laughs> you can imagine some of the conversations I've had about 15 minutes of saying to people... I think there's a thing at the back of your computer. I, I can't actually do it myself. But if you lean over, and in the end I say, it'll be okay, don't worry, we'll, we'll sort something out. And then I rely on Zoom, which is not always a good thing. But um, I've had a lovely time doing it. Well, they're great listens. They're really, really great listens. The tricky thing, actually, is trying to come up with a list that just hasn't been done before. And I'm pretty sure I haven't done that. Well, there'll be a couple of things, I suppose, that are unique. They are unique for each person. That's the point. I have recently been saying to people, try and avoid social media just because a number of people have chosen it. But actually, everybody I've spoken to who's chosen that, we start talking about it and they have a completely different viewpoint on it. Yes, I know what you mean. Yeah, I'm just wondering whether I can scrub out social media and <laughs> see what else I can, I can put. Oh, dear. Um, Sorry. I put it as one of my four things and... Also the thing that I would chuck. Ah, right. Well, that works then. You love it and you hate it. <laughs> it was going to be sort of like, you know, Schrodinger's social media. <laughs> but I'm happy to kind of, you know, think of something else. No, no. If you want to do it, as I say, each person talks about it in a very different way. Yeah. Did you hear Chris Lang on this? I did. Wasn't it gorgeous? Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah. And in fact, one of those has kind of prompted... One of the things, actually, which I didn't write down, actually. So, yeah, social media is gone because uh, I've just remembered the other thing. One, two, three, four. Yeah. Okay. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, okay. I thought it was, his was great. Yeah, really good. So many of them have been. I mean, it's, uh, uh, who did I listen to recently? Uh, Patterson. Patterson Josephs, I thought was fantastic. Just fantastic. I'm amazed by it. It's not really a requirement of being an actor that you're able to talk fluently. Is it? Yes. You know, you learn lines and you say them. But I'm amazed yeah. at some of the people I've had on and, and just how really compelling they are. People say to me, oh, you're a good listener. I say, it's easy. Of course, that, Sanjeev, is the thing that I've discovered about myself. It's like I never thought I was a listener. In fact, I probably wasn't, almost certainly. Really? Yeah. I've su I find that surprising. I've always thought you were a good listener. No, well, then maybe I am. I've never thought it of myself, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a conscious sort of entity. No, maybe I am. I don't know. It's the thing with banter. that Well, banter now means something completely different via the Yorkshire Cricket Club, <laughs> I think. Um, you have to you have to listen. I mean, it's uh, I mean, also good actors. I mean, it's kind of you have to listen. Yeah. Also, you have to be curious. And so if you're fundamentally curious you're going to be listening. And, I mean, that's one of the things, one of the many things I love about your podcast is that it is about journeys. And so you have to listen, otherwise you're going to miss a bit of the journey. Yeah. And the, and the fact that they're conversations as well. Oh, that's nice. I like to think of it as a sort of conversation I might have 
in those hours and hours where you're waiting to be called to go on set. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And then you do have the most amazing conversations. So hopefully that's what it is. But um, let's find out what you've chosen to put into yes, the Yes, that all capsule. stops here, obviously, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing falls apart <laughs> at <does>. this moment. <laughs> that's why I'm here. I'm here to be the exception <laughs> to prove the rule. Um, <laughs> shall I just dive in? Yeah, any way you want. Okay. I think I've either overthought this or not thought of it enough. <laughs> it's one of the two. And, um, you know, maybe um, you'll be able to tell me, actually, which one is which. Okay. But one of the things I tied myself in knots around with this time capsule was, is it a time capsule that other people unearth about you? Or is it one that you unearth yourself years later to remind you of who you are? It's a good question. I sort of originally thought of it as something where things that you'd had in your life that you wish you had again, they were there. Right. And and at any point, if you needed them or you wanted to revisit them, you could go back and look at them. But some people have absolutely come in with the idea of, okay, now this is not for me. Mm. This is for way down the line. I mean... That's equally as interesting. I'm not sure that the idea I came up with is necessarily a a work of genius. (laughs) Didn't they do that? Wasn't it Voyager? Didn't they kind of attach a whole bunch of stuff? Yeah. Hieroglyphics and, I don't know, a poem, um, a Shakespeare sonnet or Rock Around the Clock or something like that. There was a whole bunch of things that they sent out to aliens to kind of (laughs) define us all. Well, a Beatles song, I think, which is good. Well, Good for me. Yeah. yeah, I'm a huge Beatles fan. And according to Howard Goodall, who I've spoke to on this podcast, three pieces of music by Bach. Isn't that amazing? That's incredible. Yeah. In fact, Paul McCartney was saying that they were, in terms of classical composers, they were really drawn to Bach. They thought Bach constructed stuff in the same way they did, or probably the other way around, I should imagine. <laughs> but um, I think he said that they were really interested in Bach. So that's interesting. And Howard's obviously spoken about both of those subjects and interesting and great knowledge and depth. He has extraordinary knowledge. I mean, I could have left him for hours to talk about Bach. Many people have. (laughs) They've gone to the pub and come back. (laughs) (laughs) But he's lovely. He's lovely, Howard. He's kind of, and his was a really interesting time capsule as well. Mm. So with that in mind, so my first one that I'm putting in is my bedroom from when I was 14. So I was brought up above a laundrette. Uh, We had a maisonette above a laundrette in West London. And the bedroom wasn't great at all. I mean, it was small. It had one small gas fire and it was at the top of the house. But more specifically, it's my bedroom walls when I was 14. Right. Because I, I often think about the posters I had on my walls as an indication of who I was at 14 or what I was interested in. Mm. And I had, and I still remember it really clearly, I had a, um, I had lots of film-related things. So I had a Saturday Night Fever poster. I had uh, posters of Roger Moore as James Bond. Mm-hmm. I had the Beatles. I had Elvis. I had these A5 kind of, um, lots of A5 pictures, postcard-style pictures of scenes from uh, Some Like It Hot, Bringing Up Baby was on there, Laurel and Hardy, Chaplin, and there was Clint Eastwood and James Dean and Bruce Lee and, you know, people that were kind of iconic in the 70s. Muhammad Ali was on there. And that, when I think about it now, was my, you know, fantasy space. 
that was yeah. the world that I wanted to live in and, <laughs> you know, I connected with and was escapism and it was as far from, you know, a small cold bedroom at the top of a maisonette in Hounslow uh, as you could get, that world. And I think quite often now I think about how many of those people on those posters I've met and also how many of them became friends. And it blows my 14-year-old's mind. Oh, I bet it does. Me just telling you now does that. Mm. And it's made me feel um, incredibly grateful and lucky for the journey that I've had. And so, in a way, I can never feel unlucky. I, you know, if I you know, don't get a job or I get a bit ill or I lose some money or, you know, something doesn't go right, it doesn't make me an unlucky person because I'm the person who, when I was 14, staring at this wall of this alternative universe, I kind of think, wow, you know, I've, I've met, I met three of the Beatles, <laughs> didn't meet John Lennon. You know, Paul knows who I am, which is kind of extraordinary to me. That's weird, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I did, <laughs> Never met Elvis, but I had I've met Priscilla Presley a couple of times, and Roger Moore became a friend, which is mind blowing to me. There was I had a Life of Brian poster, so I got to know the Pythons. Yeah. Uh, some of them are friends, and Elvis Costello was on there. He's a friend, and so it's just this extraordinary, extraordinary template of my own journey and where it started. And I hope it's it makes me humble because. That journey from being 14 in a very kind of, you know, insular and kind of challenging times, if you're a young Asian kid in the 70s particularly, yeah. to having met these people and some becoming friends, has I think has got very little to do with me. I think it's just been, you know, an incredibly benevolent universe <laughs> that has kind of, you know, held my hand. And so I think about it often and just how amazing that is, and particularly if I'm feeling down, particularly about work. Yeah. Um, I just think about that. Well, maybe it's the love you had for it that just led you towards it. I mean, uh, that's a real passion to particularly remember that wall in such detail. And it's very filmic, isn't it? You've got some music up there, but nearly all film. Yeah, there was a lot a lot of film, there was a bit of telly and music. It's just the, those creative... Uh, I mean, I didn't have any Leonardo da Vinci's up there or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, or a Botticelli, but it was popular entertainment, I suppose. It was what kids were into. But also, you know, it was 20 years from that point that I started stumbling around in this profession. And it was inconceivable. I mean, it was inconceivable at 32, let alone at 14. Yeah. But I think at 14, when you're feeling misunderstood and you're going through your teen things anyway and... You know, school was a really unhappy period for me. Um, didn't fit in, didn't kind of like, you know, was isolated, bullied, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. And as an Asian kid as well, trying to work out where you fit in. Yeah, because it's a very English world. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the house was full of Indians, so... Yeah, you didn't need anything else. And, of course, you were English. This is my culture. Yeah, it's kind of... it's. I think the thing that you work towards I think in your life or that you subliminally look for is your tribe and in a way you know certainly from 14 and you know for many years beyond that 
in many ways, your tribe was ascribed to you by other people. Mm. So other people would say, well, because you're Asian, then, you know, you, you're, you, you're Asian, so you're lobbed in with that crowd or, you know, by age or where you live or, you know, all those things. And yeah. in a way, it was only when I was 34 that I sort of found my tribe, which were other people who were passionate about what you and I do. And so the nature of those conversations suddenly felt incredibly inclusive Mm. And I think there's a language of creativity as well. So I think creative people from anywhere in the world will find a way of communicating with each other. You know, language isn't a barrier because you're driven to communicate. And so, you know, one person at that point for each other is an audience as well. And you're trying to get to know who your audience is. And so that really only kicked in, you know, or became clearer much later. But certainly at 14, it was kind of, that was just a world that, yeah, just, I mean, that was over there. Yeah, fantasy world. So what, you did school, you went to college? Yeah, I, I went to university, I did a marketing degree, a uh, business and marketing degree, and then worked in marketing for, on and off for about eight or nine years, I suppose, before I started writing. And Nitin Sawney, who's, you know, well-respected composer and musician and writer, I met him when he and I were both about 20, and I realised that was the pivotal meeting in my life because he and I then did stuff at university. We kind of performed together and did comedy and and the stuff that we did then was seen when we were performing in London at a small venue by a couple of BBC producers who said, we're thinking of doing a sketch show and this is the sort of material we're looking for. Mm. And that became Goodness Gracious Me. And so I think that had I not met Nitin and started doing those things then when I was... I didn't do school plays or anything like that. No, but sort of at the right time as well, I think, Sanjeev, don't you? I mean, that in a way, if you tried earlier, you would have been blocked. With goodness gracious me. In a way, if you'd done that earlier, yes. I think it would have been ignored. Yeah, again, great good fortune, because I think you're right. I think five years earlier, nobody would have given it time of day. I think five years later, somebody else would have done something like it. Yeah. So I think we arrived at the right time. And I think just the mix of people that we had was was one of those, it's not quite lightning in a bottle, but I don't know, what's less than lightning? A spark, <laughs> fuse box going or something yeah. uh, in a bottle. Um, so I think that was kind of, yeah, again, you know, I got very, very lucky that I met him at that particular time, but that was pivotal. Absolutely. I do remember it coming along and thinking, well, being envious, actually, I, I wanted to be involved. It was, in fact, the sort of humour that the world had been crying out for, I think. Somebody from an ethnic minority taking control of the situation rather than being, as it were, the butt of it. Yeah, I mean, it's taken me some time to appreciate its own significance because, you know, you don't want to kind of tie it in with yourself and become arrogant about it. But I think looking back on it, I think it was... You know, it borrowed templates from everywhere. So I mean, Nitin and I, when we started doing stuff, there was nobody out there that represented our experiences of being British and Asian. Mm. So we were really influenced by the comedy we were watching, whether they were Jewish comedy writers from films. And on the radio, we both loved Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Radioactive, we used <laughs> to listen to. Uh, Nitin had a, a Radioactive album that we used to listen to. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, all of those things played a part because they were all influencing us. And that, that was the comedy that we were into. And then to try to push 
that style of comedy or those styles of comedy through our lens, I suppose, was the thing that was different. And same going into Goodness Gracious Me. I mean, it was, I think it's in many ways, I think it's a very British sketch show. Yeah. It just happens to come from a particular angle. Um, Sharat Sardana, who who was one of the main writers on it, he said at the time, he was doing an interview and he said, of course it's British. He said, we've got a bloody song each week, for goodness sake. You know, it was kind of, <laughs> um, so I think that, uh, you know, our influences were were incredibly important. And, you know, with Hitchhikers, I still remember being in that 14-year-old bedroom, uh, which sounds a bit weird as a sentence when you say it out loud, my bedroom when I was 14, <laughs> um, with a little transistor radio with one earpiece listening to Hitchhikers late at night. And and again, it was it was transporting. And the thing with Radioactive was I don't think I heard it on the radio. I heard it on the albums. Right. So I came to that in a slightly different way. How weird. Did you know, now this is a connection, you can tell Paul McCartney this, as is your mate, uh, <laughs> that, that we are the source of the Ringo's Not the Best Drummer in the Beatles line. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. Wow. I say we. Uh, yeah. Actually, Jeffrey Perkins wrote it. Wow. We didn't know at the time. We thought he'd nicked it. Right. And I delivered it. I delivered it on Radioactive, that line, and it turns out people have done detailed research into this and it is the first time that line was said and so you know when Paul McCartney says no I never said that I would never say that about Ringo it was us making a joke in you know the mid 80s that is fantastic and it's gone into culture it's extraordinary it has I think I I think I've read it ascribed to John Lennon yeah John Lennon said because it was the sort of catty thing that one imagines that John might say. Exactly, yeah. And so it's just been accepted that John said it. No, it was me. <laughs> That's great. I didn't Isn't know it that. amazing? <laughs> yeah, there we well, go. Well, well, well done. I feel almost famous. <laughs> I feel like I could have a place on the wall in your bedroom. <laughs> you can. Well, it's a lovely thing. I could picture it now. No footballers. And no women scratching their bottoms with a tennis ball? No, I did have a couple of football posters up, actually. It was Liverpool. I've supported Liverpool since I was about seven. Right. And the way that came about for an Asian kid in West London was that I went into school, I was about seven or eight years old, and one of the kids came up to me and said, do you like football? And I said, yeah. And he said, you support Chelsea. And I said, how do you know? And he said, we all support Chelsea, so you have to. <laughs> and at that point, I thought, right, it's going to be anyone but. Mm-hmm. And I quickly thought, well, who can I say that I support? And I always loved the Beatles. I knew they were from Liverpool. I liked the colour red, said Liverpool. And it was it was before the glory days. So then once you've got your team, you're stuck with it. Yeah, you are. Absolutely. So I did have a Liverpool team poster up. That's fair enough. All right, we're going to put that wall into the time capsule as your first item, Sanjeev. Great. So let's move on to item number two, or thing, or view, or whatever. It's a feeling, actually. And I remember, you know, Chris Lang, when he was on your programme, put in a feeling, and that's what prompted me to think about the same thing. Mm. And it's about... It's a, it's a, it's, I don't know if it's one thing. So it's pride is part of it, love is part of it, but it's seeing someone that you love that you kind of adore being great there's a really specific feeling to that you know I've kind of experienced that with my son's uh, nearly 16 but seeing him singing on stage I have that 
Nitin Sawney was playing at the Albert Hall recently and I was watching that and I realised it was a similar feeling. And so when I see friends of mine on stage or on film or just being brilliant and then actually even in the room, sometimes you can just be watching someone, you know, either one of your relatives or one of your friends holding court with a great story and making everyone laugh and you're entertained by the story but there's something else and I think for me that something else is that mix of of pride and joy and love and admiration it's that feeling mm. we all know that feeling and you've described it very well you can have that feeling with all sorts of people I mean it, obviously with your family and with children particularly do you think there's an element in it of also responsibility that you feel that you've hopefully contributed something to that moment? Yeah, I guess that could come into it as well. I think the the key thing, especially if you're a performer, it's the absence of competition. You're not competing at that point. You know, you're not thinking, oh, I'm going to top that. No. All of that is devoid. And there's this just little moment of kind of uplifting joy that, I mean, I, I'm Chancellor of the University of Sussex. And so, I, I, you know, my main involvement are the graduation ceremonies. And there's that tangible thing that I can see at that point from the families as their kind of loved one comes up onto the stage to pick up their degree. Mm. That, you know, it's, it's not just pride. It's pride and, as I said, it's love, it's admiration, relief is part of it as well, yeah. particularly, you know, when you see your friends get up on stage. I remember this when, when my son was much younger, when he used to play uh, football for various clubs. And I remember thinking, as I used to be, you know, the, the football dad on a Saturday or a Sunday morning, freezing <laughs> somewhere, being rained on, was my primary thought was kind of, please don't be shit. Mm -hmm. please don't be shit today. And the reverse of that is, you know, when he scored a goal or or something, you know, where you just kind of go, oh, this is just, that's, you want to say, that's my, that's my son or yeah. that's my friend. Or, <laughs> you know, it's anything. It's, it's that feeling. And sometimes it's momentary because you pass on to something else, you know, you, you go into another mode. But there is that moment. Yeah, or you feel embarrassed, in fact. I, I do that with my grandson. I go and watch him play football. And uh, the thing I love about it is that they're all at an age where, in fact, most of them are wonderfully gentle about it. And, in fact, one of the reasons <laughs> that he's not great at football yet, he understands the game, his positioning is marvellous. He's got quite good close skills. But he doesn't want to hurt anybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a great shame that you weren't Chancellor. Is it Chancellor of Sussex University? Yeah, it is Chancellor, yes. It's a fantastic thing to be. My wife got her PhD from Sussex University. Oh, really? That's amazing. But sadly not from you. No, probably from someone better, I should <laughs> imagine. So I also know how long that ceremony is. But you have to give each person their moment. And when it came to my wife... Being a PhD student, science PhD, right at the end she was. Mm. By that stage, the large crowd of people in the hall had sort of given up on clapping everybody who went up. Yeah. And so they called her name and up she walked, sort of in silence. And then my children, without telling me they were going to do it, both stood up and yelled, Well done, Mum! Brilliant. Brilliant. And the place erupted. Now, that, see, the, one of the things that I've been told makes the Sussex 
graduation ceremony is different is that at the top of the uh, ceremony, I basically tell the students to express themselves when they come up on stage in whatever way they want. They want to dance <laughs> on, I'll dance with them. And over the years, they have done. They've danced, they've frisbeed their mortarboards, occasionally done press-ups. Uh, <laughs> but I'll go with it. It's their moment. It's absolutely yeah. their moment. But equally, I tell the families that this is their moment too. So mm -hmm. they are you know, encouraged to make as much noise as they can when their kids come on. And what's wonderful are those moments where you know, a student will come on, a graduand at that point will come on, and their family are screaming their name and <laughs> the graduand just looking super embarrassed and going, <laughs> oh, gosh, that's so embarrassing. And you go, but that's, that's a moment. And in fact, it makes the whole ceremony then slightly unpredictable. Mm. So people go with it. But, you know, there's an energy in the room that kind of carries on. It needs, you know, the first one to do something. Yeah. And that gives permission almost to everybody else uh, to do it. And they won't forget it. I mean, I've never forgotten that moment. It was one of the proudest moments of my life. For them to show the pride in her, it was a beautiful moment, really gorgeous. I mean, how great that they had the confidence to do that. Yeah. You know, that they wanted to do it and they saw it through because that's just fantastic. All the ceremonies are extraordinary for that. One is never in a room with so much achievement and potential in one go. And it's, wow. it's yeah. really palpable. I, I really love it. I've been extraordinarily lucky, again, to have the opportunity to do something like that. Yeah. That's so left field. I mean, <laughs> it's really. weird, isn't it? Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I pretend to be other people. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, I do, do feel like I'm pretending to be a chancellor at that point, but, uh, but I'm actually a chancellor. I'm not playing one at that point. But uh, no. yeah, the day is for uh, the students and, and the, the families. I'm just a conduit there. But uh, so to be a part of it, a small part of it is, is fantastic. And in terms of it being memorable, I mean, it's, it's still incredibly gratifying that people years later will kind of contact me on social media or if I bump into them and say, you gave me my degree oh, wow. sort of eight years ago and it was one of the best days of my life. Mm. And you go, well, that's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. And I bet if I watched you during that ceremony, I'd catch you every now and again with that look on your face that you have when you're looking at someone with that joy and pride and love, even though you don't know them. Yeah. It, do you know what? It, it's the one thing that I kind of never forget, which is, you know, with every student, you know, coming along and at the end of, you know, there's something, I do three ceremonies a day sometimes, maybe five, 6,000 students across the week. I look on every one of them as my kid. And I just think, you know, each person, I try to greet each person by name. So it's their moment. It's not a generic moment, but it's, it's just that it's kind of, it's, yeah, the person who, who's coming up at the end is just as important as the first person who came up, is just as important as the person who got the biggest response, who's as important as the person who got the, the smallest response in the room. And so it's that feeling of kind of like, well, you know, you, you could be a relative. Wonderful. That's a really beautiful thing. Thank you, Sanjeev. That goes in there. I'm going to sit and think about that moment. Yeah. This afternoon on my own. We should all do that, shouldn't we? And relive some of them. Thank you. All right, let's move on to number three. Right, we're going to pause this chat for a while to give the podcast provider of your choice the chance to become the advert provider of your choice. But we'll be back very soon. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. 
Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the ads. In fact, I just hope there were some ads, as that's how we get paid. Unlike the wonderful Sanjeev Baskar, who's doing this for free. So let's find out what else the very gullib- lovely Sanjeev would like to put in his time capsule. OK, number three. I've really ummed and about this, but uh, and this may sound like the thing that I would want to leave out. It's glove puppets. <laughs> I'm putting glove puppets in there. And this is where it sounds counterproductive. But many years ago, just after I'd come out of university, there was a girl that had sort of taken a bit of a shine to me. And uh, I liked her, but I didn't like her, you know, as much, I suppose. And at the time, so I'd have been, you know, 23, 24, something like that. She was perfectly fine company, lovely girl, but it was never, nothing was ever going to happen between us. But she happened to be really, really rich. I mean, really rich. And so this was a a kind of glimpse into a world that I'd just never seen before. That level of wealth was extraordinary. And I knew that a couple of the other guys that she'd been friends with, on their birthdays, one had got a Rolex watch. The other one had got an Armani suit. Wow. And I thought, well, she didn't fancy either of them. So I've got to be in line for a car. Yeah, a Ferrari. Yeah. I mean, it's got to be bigger than, you know, those two items. <laughs> and about three months short of my birthday, she started to get really annoying. And I kind of gritted my teeth and thought, it's just three months to go. Hang on to your birthday because you're going to get <laughs> yeah. something major here. Mm-hmm. And she was increasingly annoying. And, you know, I suddenly realised that some of her views and her politics were really at odds with mine. For instance, she would start a sentence, or she did start a sentence once, with the words, the problem with poor people. (laughs) And I just thought, oh, flipping heck. Two months to go. Hang on in there. Hang on in there. Two months to go. So anyway, my birthday arrives, and I was living at my parents' place at that point. And she rang, and she said, happy birthday. And I said, oh, Oh, thanks for remembering. (laughs) She said, I've got you something. And I said, oh, you didn't have to get me anything. No, where are the keys? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she said, can I, uh, can I drop them round? And I thought, them, them, that's a good sign. And uh, she said, I'll pop over. And I said, yeah, sure. And so I looked out the window. I was looking out the window for her to arrive, thinking, is there a trailer behind with a giant thing covered in paper with a bow on it? <laughs> um, and I saw a car pull up. 
there was no trailer behind it. I thought, okay, fine. She just could just hand me the keys. Yeah. And uh, she knocked on the door, opened the door, and she had a balloon, helium balloon, and she said, I've got you this balloon. I went, oh, that's great. Well, you know, no birthday's complete without a balloon. Thank you very much. She said, I've got you this cake. And I said, no birthday without a cake either. That's fantastic. And she said, I've got you these two uh, puppets, these glove puppets. <laughs> and one was a tiger whose mouth you could move. And the other one was a bear whose hands you could move. And so I kind of, you know, put them on each hand and sort of made them have a conversation with each other. Hello. Hello. And I said, that's great. And she said, well, happy birthday. <laughs> and she said, well, I was going to get you something kind of, you know, big. But then she said, but you're kind of funny, really. And so I thought you'd appreciate something funny. <laughs> and um, I kept the glove puppets. I've kept the glove puppets as a kind of signature reminder of where my own greed and avarice yep. can take me. It was so shallow. And so I'd like to put those two glove puppets, a tiger whose mouth you can move, doesn't have any arms, and a bear whose mouth doesn't move, but whose <laughs> hands you can wiggle a bit because it'll just be a reminder to me that I can be a, an utter twat as well, as I was. They're perfectly matched, I think, because the tiger's mouth moves. It can say, oh, these are shit presents. Um, I think we should break up. <laughs> And then the bear only needs to move its hands. It's perfect. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I was, you know, I, did, I had no job and I was in debt, you know. So, uh, but yeah, it was a sal salutary lesson. Yeah. All for a car. Yeah. It is difficult, though, isn't it, when somebody clearly is very fond of you and you know, you sort of go, you see, maybe I'm weird, but I always based all my judgments about girls on whether I could spend the rest of my life with them. That is weird, isn't it? No, it's not, you know, because, I, you know, I, I don't know how many is many relationships, but I don't think I had many, and they were all quite sort of longish. Yeah. And I think it was always that thing of kind of saying, well, uh, unless it's going to go somewhere that I don't really see the point. I remember even, uh, I couldn't, I mean, I had no confidence anyway when I was growing up, but asking girls to dance was a horrifying <laughs> situation for me. A, because I couldn't handle the rejection, but also it was, you know, I have to be able to talk to them, surely. Yeah. Whereas other people would just kind of ask someone that they fancied to dance and they would just, I don't know, move in very small circles silently. <laughs> and, and then kiss them. Yeah, and then, then they'd go out with them. Yeah. And then they'd be very happy, but... I remember the first time that the girl said yes. I think within about 30 seconds, I started talking to her while we were dancing. And I could see from the look on her face, she was saying, well, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> I didn't want a relationship. I wanted to snog. Yeah. But then at the same time, I sort of never really trusted the friends of mine who clearly were going out with girls simply because the girls would have sex with them. Yeah. You could tell they didn't really like these girls. And I, I used to think, how weird. I, I never thought that the sex would compensate for the boring conversation. No, same here. Same here. I couldn't agree with you more. I remember there was a line that I said at college. There was a girl that I really liked, and I kind of followed her around like a puppy for about two months, <laughs> never kind of asking her out oh. because I couldn't deal with the no and everything, but, you know, just being around, giving a lift whenever she needed a lift and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And one night at the student union bar, she went out with... The person that everyone kind of classified as the, you know, the year's 
bastard. Yeah. I mean, th- he was good-looking guy, really charming. He had a girlfriend every month. And she started going out with him. And I was just tipsy enough to go up to her and say, you know, you're going out with that guy. You know what he's like. You're the kind of fifth girlfriend this year. And, you know, there's me. I've been following you around. And and she said, yeah, but you're just too nice. Mm. And I said, yeah, but if you gave me a chance, I could really treat you like shit. <laughs> <laughs> and it was too good a line for me not to say. <laughs> yeah, they're weird, those men. And I find it strange that girls choose them. I, I do get it because, you know, they're good looking. They have confidence. And they're a bit of a cad. <laughs> and so there's a bit of danger to that. Mm. And, I, you know, I was just no threat to anybody. So, you know, I was safe. <laughs> and so safe meant boring. I mean, I was funny, I think. But that um, that element of danger and unpredictability and, you know, it was all that sort of stuff. Yes, yes. Well, they didn't have two very nice puppets that they could entertain you with. No, they had Rolex watches and bloody Armani suits <laughs> is what they had. <laughs> So, yeah, <laughs> who's laughing now? Yeah. Well, actually, I am. <laughs> <laughs> they made a big mistake. <laughs> anyway, I'm just going to call Paul McCartney. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, how wonderful. Let's put those in there. And good of you to confess. Well, thank you very much. OK, let's move on to the fourth item, which is either something you want to get rid of or we can do the other thing that you'd like to keep. OK, so one more good thing. So the good thing is, it, and this is difficult to kind of, you know, pracy down because obviously, you know, I, I was by my wall, my 14-year-old bedroom wall, you know, films and telly and pop music and stuff were, were incredibly important to me. They were escapes for me and and particularly at that time in a very kind of perilous and challenging time, I think, for kids anyway, but kids of colour. Um, that was a genuine escape. You know, it made me feel connected to to the country I was in and to the culture I was in. Yeah. So, you know, film and television is really important to me. And then trying to precede that down to something that was kind of, because I've loved films forever. But I found as I got older that if there's a period that I go back to in terms of entertainment, it is the 60s. And it's 60s music and 60s films and mm-hmm. 60s fashion is something that I'm constantly drawn back to a comfort with. And I was thinking about that and I thought, well, given the stuff that I'm interested in, you know, the 60s, Elvis was still around. The Beatles were at their kind of pomp. Sinatra was around. Dean Martin was still about. So you had all that kind of, you know, the big band Rat Pack stuff. That was all influential. Film, James Bond, I've been kind of besotted by from when I can remember. So they were all around at that point. Mm. Um, One of the things with television was that you watch television as a communal experience. And so, you know, for me, for many other reasons as well, you know, sitting down with my family to watch The Saint Mm. was just, you know, one of those great comfort things where we all locked into seeing Roger Moore being kind of debonair and witty and charming and and fantastic. And also the storylines suddenly were kind of out there. It was the 60s. So, you know, a lot of the storylines in the Avengers and all the American imports, the voyage to the bottom of the sea and land of the giants and lost in space. Um, mm, man from uncle. Man from uncle. Oh, open channel D, Mr. Waverly. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, you, you know, this, this storytelling suddenly seemed to change in the 60s in that... You know, people went a bit sci-fi and people started to incorporate that, which you 
I don't think you had as much before. No. And in the same way that, you know, you had Swinging London and, you know, music kind of changed drastically at that point as well. I think that, you know, television and film was doing that. It just went kind of out there. And I think a lot of stuff since then has been a lot more derivative. Yeah. It's been brilliant and it's been fantastic. But that outpouring of sheer creativity in film and and television and music in the 60s is something I'm drawn back to. Thunderbirds. You know, it was was a drama series, action series with puppets. Amazing. And it was brilliant. It was brilliant. And, you know, now it would be a kid's show. Yeah. And um, at that time, it, it wasn't. It was just because entertainment TV particularly was communal. And so, you know, you had your stuff off, you know, after nine o'clock, the play for today's and stuff like that, which were a bit more serious. Mm. But actually before that, it was it was family entertainment. That's who they were aiming it at. So I think 60s entertainment, which I know is a really broad brushstroke, is the thing that I would put in there. No, it's good. It's good because, in fact, for most people, that's how they lived the 60s. That's how they experienced the 60s. They didn't experience it by going to Carnaby Street. You lived it through the programmes that were on. I think you're right. That's how we experience the 60s. I think also, I think particularly in Britain, I think the youth culture kind of manifested itself in the 60s. You know, it's it's always seemed to have been kicked off by, you know, rock and roll and everything in the mid-50s in America. Yeah. But in the 60s, I think British youth culture made it its own. You know, it'd been imports up until then. Yes. You know, it's also connecting with immigration. So, you know, all the tie-dye patterns that came from India suddenly entered into clothes. Ravi Shankar was kind of suddenly recognised as an artist. The Beatles were using kind of Indian music here. Reggae, you know, in terms of UK bands, in terms of influence, started to filter in, which had never happened before. And so I think that's why maybe, you know... You know, I don't remember much of the 60s, which means I must have been there because I was a kid. So I remember the tail end of it. But I am drawn back to uh, there's an innocence at the beginning of the 60s, particularly in pop music, that I find really appealing. And by the end of the 60s, it's actually quite complex in terms of what people are doing. Yes. I mean, it's quite a journey, isn't it, those 10 years? I always think of the 60s as almost like that moment in The Wizard of Oz where it goes colour. <laughs> Before then, everybody wore a hat yeah. and an overcoat. <laughs> yeah. And then suddenly, all these people came out wearing orange. It's incredible. Yeah. If you're living in a maisonette above a laundrette in Hounslow, you're going to live it through the television. You're going to live it by going to the cinema and through listening to the music. You're not going to have people walking down Hounslow High Street in Mary Quant. No, although the interesting thing about that is that uh, obviously my mum, particularly in her friends, they were used to wearing colour. Ah, of course, yeah. So, you know, that the saris and all that sort of stuff were incredibly colourful. Yeah. So it didn't feel, uh, you know, the styles might have felt strange, but the colours did not feel alien at all. Right. And it's something you just said about the television was television was black and white. So a trip to the cinema really was, you know, this kind of burst of kind of technicolour exuberance. Yeah. You know, the, so movies were made for movie screens. Mm. Uh, you know, they weren't made for television. And so all of those experiences felt incredibly heightened. You know, TV was communal. You did that with your family. And then you went to the pictures and the screens were huge. This was before multiplexes. Yeah. And it was an event. And... um 
Top of the Pops was brilliant because that charted the differences in terms of music and also at a time where, I mean, into the 70s as well, where novelty records could hit the top of the charts. And so they could sit very happily besides The Doors or Pink Floyd or whoever, you know, Jimi Hendrix. Uh, you could have that and then you'd have, you know, Grandad by Clive Dunn. And that was a bit later, but... Ernie. Ernie, Ernie, fastest milkman in the West. It's funny, I, I mean, I was a kid as well at that time, so uh, seeing it through my parents' behaviour, uh, I do remember my father, towards the end of the 60s, letting his hair grow long. Yeah, yeah, my dad did that. <laughs> that was sort of the look that he kept for the rest of his life. Uh, actually, even put your hair over your ears. It's quite a brave thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is the... Change, the great change in Western society, isn't it? So I'm very happy to put that in there. Well, also because, you know, things like, you know, people became uh, aware of things like Motown, for instance. You know, Motown was created in the 60s. You know, there were kind of do-what bands and stuff before that. But suddenly, you know, these fantastic bands with this fantastic rhythms, and they all impacted on each other, you know, in terms of the, the British bands at the time and, and American music. And so, as I said, yeah, it is a, it's a, I think it's a comfort decade for me, notwithstanding knowing that there were terrible things going on in the world and people were having you know, great difficulties and great challenges. Mm. But purely in terms of entertainment, I think for me, it's, it's a, a comfort zone. Well, let's put that entertainment in there to entertain you anytime you like. Marvellous. Okay, so we move on to our final item, the thing you want to uh, reject from your life. Yeah, and this may sound really obvious and really broad, but I'm going to put racists in there. Good. I think, (laughs) what a bunch of wankers. I mean, it's kind of, they've never been any good for anyone, really, not for the world, not for the planet. And I kind of thought about this. It was, I don't think, um, you know, racists are, I mean, it's been a, blight on my life but also i think they they generally are all the other ists as well i think they tend to be sexist they tend to be a bit misogynistic you know i can't think of a racist who kind of fights for women's rights <laughs> and believes that women have equal rights and absolutely and then you know it's like foreigners it doesn't make sense to me it, it just doesn't make sense does it it really doesn't i don't know what they're basing it on I can't see what the argument is. What proof would you have? Yeah. I think to group people, well, to group people in itself is a stupid thing to do. Mm. The idea that everybody would be the same, it's extraordinary. It just doesn't make sense. There's no logic to it at all. Yes. I mean, it's, you know, it's easier, I suppose, experientially and empirically for me to have, you know, experienced some of these things and lived through some of these things to have that attitude. But also, you know, I was really aware very early on that the Marx Brothers and Peter Sellers were Jewish. And so there was no way that I could just become an anti-Semite because I really loved the Marx Brothers and I really loved, you know, Bob Dylan and I really loved uh, Peter Sellers. And then, with the music, particularly whether it was Motown or whether it was Muhammad Ali for me, uh, Cassius Clay as he was at that point, I kind of thought, well, you can't say all black people because look, look, they're amazing. And, you know, therefore, and so on, you know, whether they be kind of, you know, from France or from Italy or from South America yeah. or from yeah, anywhere, absolutely anywhere, there was always kind of an example that I'd found someone who I admired because of what they did. 
And so at that point, the whole idea of collectively dumping everybody else yes. into one group or another just seemed to me really, really odd and weird and ridiculous. And I don't know, rightly or wrongly, and maybe this sounds more chauvinistic than it than it's intended to, but I was always really, really disappointed with racist women because I just thought, you're a woman. You know what it's like to be a second-class citizen in this world. <laughs> you're kind of treated badly anyway, and you're kind of, you know, not given equal opportunities and not given equal pay. You must know what that feels like. Yeah. Um, so that was always particularly disappointing. But uh, I've never met a racist I liked. No, I've never met a racist I like either. <laughs> no. I remember even as a young man seeing the athletes uh, on the podium, the American athletes, mm. during the National Anthem, and I remember the fuss that was made about it, but I looked at it and thought, well, you can't blame them, can you? I'm a child, but I know what it's like in America. I know that black people are second-class citizens. They're not allowed to travel on the same bus or they have to sit at the back. Mm. I knew that was the case. And to me, it seemed astonishing. Uh, you know, as far as I was concerned, America was uh, all men are born equal. And for them not mm. to see that, I could not understand it, even as a boy. And so then when... Years and years later, you see people marching and saying Black Lives Matter. You go, are we still making this point? I did a, a, um, a doc thing for the Beeb, and I interviewed a guy in New York who had marched with Martin Luther King. And I said to him, I said, if Martin Luther King was here today, what would he make of where we're at? in terms of civil rights in America. And this is about sort of three, four years ago. And he said to me, he said, if Martin Luther King was alive today? And I said, yeah. And he said, he'd have a heart attack and die. Huh. And it was that, you know, in the space of kind of three or four years in America, such huge leaps had been made, at least legally, mm. in terms of black people having the vote and, you know, the Civil Rights Act, which is around 1964 or so, yeah. that you'd think that those strides would still be huge ones after that. And to think that kind of, you know, 50 years later, actually, a lot of those arguments are still being had, you know, at least at a moral, ethical level, and indeed on a legal level as well, Ooh. when you look at the way that, you know, various kind of courts have applied jurisdiction to various cases. Um, it's still an ongoing issue. And yeah. as I said, it's one that I, I you know, in terms of where does it come from, I think, you know, it comes from ignorance and fear. And, you know, the fear is that you will lose something to these people, these others. Mm. And that absolutely suggests an utter lack of confidence in oneself. Yeah. Because the whole idea of, you know, society is that society evolves. I mean, the idea that, you know, people now kind of go, some people who to adopt those views think, well, you know, it was better in the 50s or it was better <laughs> in the 40s or better in the 30s. Well, go to talk to the people in the 30s and they'll be saying that about, you know, the three decades before that. Yeah. You know, and whether in, in Britain, whether it was the Huguenots or whatever who came at wherever put, they were always the outsiders. And so there was this idea that maybe we would lose something and actually we just evolve, we absorb. You know, there's no nation on earth that socially is as it was 100 years ago. No. Each one has moved. You know, communication has done that. Trade has done that. Entertainment has done that in a huge way. So it's one that I kind of I get where it comes from, but I think it, it comes from such a 
you know, a place of such a lack of self-worth. I think that, you know, if your own self-worth isn't high, some people just think it's easier to drag other people's self-worth down rather than elevate yourself. And it's easier, isn't it, rather than looking into it to just go, oh, that must be it then. It must be all those people. The reason my life isn't the way I want it to be is because of them. Yeah, I mean, that's the key to it, really. I mean, it's kind of, and that's why, you know, for me, again, you know, I'm incredibly lucky and, you know, my story doesn't necessarily apply to anybody else, but that 14-year-old bedroom wall has given me a sense of gratitude. You know, nobody owes me anything. Universe doesn't owe me anything. So anything I do, I've, I've got to do myself. I'm not going to wait for anything to come to me. It's already come to me. You know, I didn't expect to get that. No. So, yeah, I think it is. You're, you're right. I think a lot of it is, you know, a fear and a lacking of a sense of self that isn't fully developed. I think it's, it's you know, people who are unevolved yet. Yeah. Yeah. Shove them in a time capsule, I say. Let's shove them in there and let them all discuss it themselves. And then you can bet your life when they finish having their discussion, they'll all go and have a curry. <laughs> do they not see the irony? They absolutely do not. Sanjeev, how lovely to see you. You're very kind to give up your time. Not at all. Absolute pleasure. It's always uh, lovely to talk to you. We kind of don't bump into each other enough. No. I mean, we've never referenced the fact that we met first on work. Yeah. Did we not? We did. Captain Butler, I think. And that was before Goodness Gracious Me came out on telly. Yeah. So I'd just done the radio series, and I think it was my first or second telly that I'd ever done. <laughs> yeah, amazing. And uh, what a great moment that was. Oh, lovely. I have to say, Craig Charles, who was very nice to me on that, yeah. gave me a great bit of advice, actually, which, of course, if there'd been more spaces in the time capsule, I would have put in good advice mm. from well-wishers. Um, but he said to me, I was always late at that point. I'm, ne I'm never late now. I find the whole idea of being late abhorrent. But at that time, I was late a lot. And he said to me, look, I don't mind if you come in late. He said, I'm being paid anyway to do this. But he said, look, I'll give you a bit of advice for free. He said, it'll take you two weeks to get a bad reputation in this business. And it will take you two years to clear it. Mm. And I thought that was very, very smart. Very good. Smart advice. In life. In life, absolutely. Be polite, turn up on time and do what you're supposed to do. Yeah. And do it as best you can. And that will see you a long way. <laughs> <laughs> You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my wonderful guest, Sanjeev Baskar. What a treat, eh? Well, it certainly was for me. If you enjoyed it as well, then please subscribe to and rate this podcast on whichever podcast provider you're listening to us on. And if they give you the opportunity to write a review, then we'd really appreciate you taking that opportunity. You can follow me or my time capsule on social media, Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, that is. And you can contact us about anything, but usually the podcast. The theme tune by Past the Peas Music is available on Spotify to download or stream. This has been a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton Stevens. Oh, by the way, for those of you interested in such things, you can see Captain Butler starring Craig Charles and Sanjeev on YouTube. Yep, that was a long time ago. I can't really believe how many years it is, actually. But, you know the old saying, time flies like an arrow and fruit flies like a banana. Bye. Hold up. 
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.